The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. I'd like to uh, welcome back Mark Roberge, who, uh, as many of you know, is HubSpot's former CRO, author of the best-selling book, The Sales Acceleration Formula, and founding partner at Stage 2 Ventures. And somehow Mark also finds time to lecture at Harvard Business School and present at conferences like SASTA. So Mark has uh, returned to the Startup to Scale Up game plan to share the conclusions of his latest research, The Science of Reestablishing Growth, Where, When, and How, a topic that will resonate with many businesses struggling with those uh, lockdown challenges. So, uh, Mark, it's uh, great to welcome you back. Hey, thanks, Gary. Appreciate you having me. So how has the uh, pandemic affected you, you personally? over the last three months, what have been the biggest changes for you with your lecturing, your researching, and your VC commitments? Yeah, I mean, we're over here in Boston. It's a pretty significant epicenter. So we've been all taking it quite seriously, you know, locking down. I've got two boys that are 13 and 12. So their school actually has done a phenomenal job moving to virtual campuses, uh, which is been good. And, you know, we're doing, I think, the typical story that everyone else is doing with with regard to family life. On the professional side, yeah, I mean, it was both a scramble with Harvard Business School and a scramble with State Street Capital and our VC portfolio. On the HBS side, I thought the school responded actually quite well. We quickly went into rapid Zoom training, all of our spring breaks were not sitting on a beach. They were sitting in Zoom, getting trained up and really scrambling to make our, our teaching plans more aligned and cohesive to that environment. You know, it's tricky at HBS because these are not lectures. <laughs> you know, I'm like, you're not allowed to lecture. These are classes of 90 students each where the students talk 90% of the time. Our job as a as an instructor is to ask provocative questions and progress the the discussion in insightful manner toward learning objectives. You kind of like selling in a way, right? So that was a little tricky over Zoom, but um, you know, I think how do you get ninety people contributing on Zoom? You just do it. I mean, we've got the education module, so there's a hand raise function. There's ways we've used breakout rooms. Uh, We use the chat polling. And we do a lot of cold calling. We all, even in the in the classroom, we do a lot of cold calling. I mean, this particular class I was teaching this semester is a first year course. You know, the MBA program is two years, and HBS is one of the last MBA programs to have the whole first year required. And so there's 900 students in each year. They're separated into 10 90 person sections, and these sections are very proactively engineered for to create the experience that the students and HBS wants to create in the MBA setting, right? It's like, it's, we're, in, we're in a very global business community these days. There's a lot of discussion around diversity, gender, race, ethnicity, um, but also professional diversity. Are you a military person or a management consultant or a nonprofit person? So these 90 student sections bring that, 
you know, I mean, they, there's probably like 30 countries represented in my section that I teach half women, half men, many races, bankers and nonprofit folks and military and tech people. And, and so we have to really know our students because you got to bring them in at the right time. You know what I mean? Depending on what we're talking about. So it's quite an experience as an instructor to be able to do that. You know, it's kind of like sitting, you know, sitting in front of a musical organ <laughs> and knowing like which note to hit at which time. Mark, the musician, now, tell me about your VC scramble, Mark. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you know, this hit and I think any investor and every entrepreneur was just, what do we do? And, you know, a lot of, we've made 11 investments out of the first fund of stage two capital. And, and we also were in the middle of raising our second fund. When everything hit, you know, we, we had to circle up with our 11 portfolio companies. And you can imagine these are, you know what a tech founder looks like. like some of them weren't even graduated of college in 08 when the last you know, great recession happened. So this is a very new experience for many of them. And so we just, we ran through the typical processes of just looking hard at the financials to make sure that even in pretty extreme down situations, we had 12 to 18 months of runway and making decisions around staff or, or budget, just general salary or budget reforecasting to make, make sure that that happened. And the thing I think that most people have honestly haven't met an entrepreneur yet that I think has made the appropriate level of bold decision to reorient their business within the current times. And, and that, that was really the, you know, I was, I was in the head of sales seat at HubSpot in 08 when everything happened. You know, we were I think roughly a series A backed company, right? So we were young and fragile and we were a bit freaked out, but it, you know, we didn't really get hurt by it because our value prop was aligned with a modern sales mechanism that could help. And that was like one of the few things that many small business owners needed. I think the many entrepreneurs looking back on OA a year later, their biggest regret was not making a bolder decision in terms of, I don't want to say maybe pivoting or just re-optimizing who they sell to and the message they go to market with. And so that, that was a lot of our work with our portfolio was pushing them to think more boldly around that, that optimization. So your view is that so far, they haven't been making the bold decisions that you, you'd expected or that you feel are necessary in the current climate. Most people I talk to. Yeah. And like we've, we've pushed a lot of our folks and they have done, I think a a good job as as we've pushed them, you know, some of them were a little, it's, I guess it's just human nature. Like it's also easy to look back on this because remember a week or two in, we didn't know what we're dealing with here. Like, was this, was this going to be a three week shutdown and then go away? Was this going to be a two month shutdown? I mean, I think there's more and more visibility as the weeks go on as to what we're dealing with, but there's still uncertainty. You know, I think there's an appreciation of, of that reoptimization. So we've had companies that fortunately none of them sold only to like travel and hospitality, you know what I mean? Like the, or, or restaurants, like those are unfortunately entrepreneurs that are in a tough spot and it's not their fault. It's just bad luck, you know, with, with how things unfolded and they're, 
they have their leadership work to do. But there's definitely been tweaks. I mean, we have had people sewn into retail and a little bit of hospitality, and they've had to relearn how their message resonates with sort of medical facilities and tech infrastructure businesses. And that's done quite well. And that that was a, a great example of, you know, how their optimal target market uh, is very different today compared to January. And just like when you're starting out as a seed funded business with five people in your company, and you think about the, the operating cadences that you ran in order to maximize your learning of that messaging, et cetera, those need to be redone. Gary, one of the favorite things that talk to entrepreneurs about that, that they've been benefiting greatly is the implementation of a daily film review. And so what, what this says, you know, I was talking to a sales leader who was running a, like a 30-person sales team. And you know, she was doing a film review once a week, which is basically like, let's listen to a recording, ideally a, a discovery call. So the buyer's talking a lot. And let's learn from that. And, you know, I suggested maybe instead of, you know, 30 people on a Zoom together listening, it's not the most engaging experience. And furthermore, that's like one hour a week that you all are dedicating toward re-understanding the buyer sentiment, persona, preferences, et cetera, right? I just think there should be a bigger investment there. So I suggested that she not do that one 30 hour, you know, one 30 person meeting a week, but have two a day that she's on that are, you know, with five reps, whatever the math is. And, and that way, like she's on two a day. So 10 a week and each rep is on like one or two a week, right? Cause she's going to have split them up into groups. And that's just, that's just an example of like, a cadence that I wouldn't have recommended back in January if you were just in like the scaling mode. But I think an extraordinarily important cadence right now where we're in the relearning and optimization mode. And so what she walks away with is 10 hours a week of listening to the current buyer so she can more effectively reimagine and optimize messaging but just as importantly, 10 hours a week where she is in a small, intimate setting with four or five reps, evaluating how they are, whether they're implementing and optimizing their own frontline approach to be better aligned with the current buyer. Do you think she'll continue with that approach when things settle down? I don't think she necessarily should, to be honest with you. Because I think like, these group film reviews and this level of investment that I'm talking about is really critical during the learning phase, right? So if, for example, let's say it's two, three years from now, and this company is back into, or even a year from now, they've rethought and reinvented their target, mass, target marketing message, then this cadence is no longer necessary. At that point, there's not, there's not a lot of learning to do. We're more focused on scaling. We have the playbook. Let's just go. The film review in that case is more a one-on-one situation. So it's talking with a rep and, and noticing that their opportunity to customer conversion rate is, is lower than the team benchmark. And so we've got to figure out why. It's likely something they're doing on the discovery call. So let's listen to some 
you know, one-on-one, I don't need to do it with a team. It's just one-on-one, listen to two or three discovery calls this month together and see if we can't diagnose what's going on. But if, for example, a year from now, they were moving, like maybe they create a new product, that would be a great example where I'd want to run a team film review for a few months because we don't know how to sell that thing. So I'd, I'd, I'd like to create a, a small cross-functional team that maximizes, it spreads that learning across a very small set of brains as opposed to the whole team. And just run that through that, that optimization and learning sequence and move it into scale mode. Okay, so even when we reach the new normal, there are going to be situations, new product launches and so on, where these film reviews are going to come in extremely useful. So you may, you may well suggest sticking with this process, but in very specific situations and environments. Yeah, it's any time we're trying to identify new growth avenues. And in my opinion, I think about three dimensions of potential growth, new markets, new products, and new channels. Usually when you start off, you figured out one product market channel combination, right? We know how to sell this business intelligence module that we've built as our minimal viable product. We know how to sell that to the mid-market in Europe, for example. And we know how to sell that through a, like a cold calling function, SDRs, cold calling, send appointments and closing business inside. Okay, so that's a, that's a product market channel combination. And if once we figured out how to, well, that's ready to be scaled, then we just start scaling it up. Now, that's not going to scale to a billion dollar business on its own. Like we need to either introduce a new product or sell our existing product to a new market or sell both the same product and the same, the same market through a different channel. Like maybe we start a content marketing program. Maybe we start a partnership, like channel program. Anytime we switch one of those, we, we often need to run it for at least a few weeks, often a few months in a small cross-functional side team to just figure out the learning as quickly as possible to move that into scale mode as well. That sounds like a really effective way of moving things once we're into the new normal. But moving on from, from that, I wanted to talk to you about some of your latest research. So you've been researching the science of scaling, and you've highlighted a number of mistakes that tech startups and scale-ups are, are making. So let's uh, explore them one by one. The first one you've identified, and it's a favorite topic of, of mine actually, is premature focus on revenue growth, whereas customer value creation and retention are, are largely ignored. Now. My question to you is, doesn't a lot of that problem stem from VCs driving young startups to aim for triple, triple, double, double revenue growth? I don't think it helps. <laughs> you know, I think like, yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of talk around like blitz scaling and like breakout speed, you know, that probably comes out of Silicon Valley. And like, I don't disagree. I mean, there's, there's a mentality that's necessary there, which is like the whole premise is like, you've got to create a lot of noise to create the category. You'll 
by doing that, you'll acquire a lot of customers and you'll acquire the most capital. And then when you acquire the most capital, you have the most down engineers. That means you'll build the best product fast enough and you break out. I think that's all really sound thinking. However, it's just done pretty haphazardly. <laughs> I think we'd all agree that there's a pace that is unhealthy. <laughs> that's probably going to un- lead to unnecessary failure. And that's all I'm trying to bring is a little bit more of a data-driven rigorous definition of when we can scale and how fast. So I agree, like one way to summarize some of the shortcomings of today's mentalities is this premature obsession with top-line revenue growth. Anytime I ask an entrepreneur how they're doing, the first thing they say is how fast they're growing revenue. (laughs) And anytime like I hear an investor ask an entrepreneur about their business, they always ask how fast they're growing revenue. And that's definitely something that I've seen across hundreds of businesses is especially like in the, you know, sub million dollar or single digit million dollar revenue line, the correlation to those that take off as unicorns and those that flatline isn't necessarily in how fast they're growing revenue, but how strong their customer attention is. And it's just that dialogue is a bit buried and not not at the forefront as much as I should be in the early infancies, right? So, so that's really the sets the cornerstone of the scaling framework is first off, understanding when to scale and it focuses the business first on customer attention. It's a three-pronged framework of product market fit and then go-to-market fit and then growth and moat. Those are the three phases. And the definition of product market fit here is hinged in, in what you're bringing up here, Gary, around a shift from in the early phases from top line revenue growth to customer attention. The thinking there is like, it's funny, Gary, like, I don't know if you've done this, but when you ask entrepreneurs and investors, like, when should you scale? I would say most say when you have product market fit. But then when you ask them, what is product market fit? You ask 10 entrepreneurs, you get 10 different answers, which is crazy. It's crazy that like we got this term that we're using to make such an important decision in our business, like a make or break decision on when we're going to scale. And yet there's just a lot of inconsistency and subjectivity to this perception of what it is. You know what I find hard to get my head around is that most of the businesses you're dealing with have a SaaS model. And you would think that a SaaS business would have figured out that customer retention and customer value creation, but customer retention for sure is important because it's kind of baked into the very idea of of SaaS. You're totally right. It took us honestly two or three years at HubSpot to wake up and be like, duh, it's the churn. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's the number. And I think many SaaS businesses go through that reflective journey. I think we're getting a little better about it, but it's not surprising why that took so long because we're we're crawling out of the on-premise enterprise software world where churn really didn't matter that much. I mean, when you closed a deal, like these were usually big deals and the company that bought your stuff, the first thing they did was they'd have to buy like 50 servers to put in their office and and then load your software on, which took like six months and then train their whole staff on how to use it. And they were just 
stuck. I mean, there was no churn. And, and that's where the, oftentimes the software kind of sucked. It wasn't the best product that we wanted. It was the best sales and marketing team. And once you got the signature, that was it. You know, and that's where this concept of shelfware came about. You know, where it's like, it just sits on the shelf and no one uses it. But once the internet became pervasive at the beginning part of the century and cloud came out, it was a lot easier to adopt this stuff, like usually with the click of a button, but it's also a lot easier to leave. We're still absorbing that, that lesson, and we're still rewriting the sort of sales and marketing and go-to-market playbook to adopt to it. And we'll come on to the playbook in a little while. Let's go back to product market fit, which you mentioned a few moments ago. What data do companies need to truly understand whether they do indeed have product market fit? When I ask students or ask entrepreneurs, what is it? A lot of them say revenue. Product market fit is when people are buying stuff. And I I don't agree with that. Like that's message market fit. That just means that you got a buyer on the phone and you understood their problems and you told them a story about what your product does and they bought it. I don't, I don't think that's product market fit. It doesn't mean your product works. It doesn't mean what you told them is going to happen. It doesn't mean they ever realized the value, right? So, you know, some of them are a little subjective, like having a workable product in a big market. It's just like, they just have trouble understanding when that happens. Um, some of them rely on surveys, like when you survey your customers and like 50% of them say they love your product. I mean, that's cool, but like everyone knows that surveys are riddled with false positive, you know, survey takers are often just overly nice because they feel bad for the survey provider. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I just have trouble like hinging as such a critical, when I think about it, I do, I do think this customer retention number is if I had to pick one metric to correlate with product market fit, I'd pick retention. The problem with it is it's such a lagging indicator. When we sign up customers today in May, we really don't have visibility into the true retention of that cohort of customers for possibly a year. And we don't have a year to wait to understand this. So this notion of understanding your leading indicator to customer retention, that's one of the most important definitions that we have to make for a company as an entrepreneur, what is your leading indicator to customer attention? Something that you could observe in the first week, month, two months of a customer's life cycle with you, that if this event occurred, they're likely to be with you forever. And if it didn't, they're likely to churn. We're not talking that much about that. Well, it leads me to ask the the question, uh, are you asking that question, what is your leading indicator of customer attention? You're asking that question of CEOs and founders, but also are you getting your portfolio companies to ask that question of, Absolutely. of, of, of VPs of sales that they may be looking to hire into their team? Good question. Like certainly asking our people, our entrepreneurs, very few of them have defined it when we first meet them, but Many of them have a deep, good intuition on what it might be and oftentimes scramble the next 40 hours to go figure, figure <laughs> out what it would be in their business, which is fun to see. The VP of sales thing, not so much just because I don't think it's the VP of sales decision. 
it's the CEO's decision. It's the founder's decision because it's like, it really aligns the entire company around it. Right. So there have been some, like the many companies in the Silicon Valley refer to it as the aha moment. There's been some documentation on that. And there has been some documentation on like really great unicorns that have like had notions of this, right? We certainly did at HubSpot. Like Slack's notion, I believe, was something like if the company sends 2,000 team messages in the first 30 days, that's their leading indicator. So if, if like, if they sign up a bunch of companies in a month and they see that like 80% of them sent over 2,000 team messages in the first 30 days, I would say that's product market fit. <laughs> that's a lot better than like having a you know workable product in a big market. It's a lot better than people just buying. It's like, yeah, I mean, if you sign up some customers and 30 days later, 70% of them sent over 2,000 team messages, which is an event that's really correlated to this, the value they probably trying to create, that's one of the best definitions of product market fit I've seen. Yeah. You know, and so... When you establish that as the bullseye, that has a severe, a significant implication on every function in your company. Like product, study all the people that don't hit that. Study all the people that sign up and don't send 2,000 team messages in the first 30 days and figure out what, how you can reduce friction and enhance the product to make that work. Sales set expectations around that usage profile, get people sending messages before you even close them, reflect on what you said. Cause sales honestly has the biggest responsibility here and the most impact. And that's often overlooked. And, and in fact, I would encourage at this stage, we compensate our salespeople, not on the signature of the contract, but on when they send the 2000 messages, team messages. It's just like in a customer success, your job is not retention. I don't know. I don't, as a 26 year old customer success manager, I don't know how to get my churn below 10% a year, but I do know what to do to get my companies to send 2,000 team messages in the first 30 days. And it's a very healthy behavior. And then marketing, send us leads of profiles of companies that will likely achieve that milestone, right? So this is not a VP of sales decision. This is a CEO decision, both in defining it and holding the cross-functional organization accountable to achieving it. With regards to the VP sales, and, and maybe I should have used the phrase VP sales or, or CRO. In fact, perhaps CRO sure. is, is, the, is the better example. If you had a portfolio company that was looking to hire a CRO, would it be a good technique to figure out if this CRO really, really had the right experience and the right kind of insight? To ask him to have your you know your hiring team ask him or her what mm-hmm. is your leading indicator of customer retention to see if the CRO that you're looking at hiring into your portfolio company can answer that question or if they just squirm and look very uncomfortable because candidly they haven't got a clue. Perhaps I think we're still too early in this like codification that I'd I'd be surprised if many of them weren't squirming in their chair. But I think to explore there, especially if we're at this stage, you know, because this, you know, I think you've seen this, Gary, and you've helped the industry avoid this, is um, the hiring of the leader can really mess up a lot of companies, the sales leader, because you do find 
you know, a lot of entrepreneurs that raise their next round, whether it's an A round or a B round, and suddenly there's these enormous expectations that they've sold to their VC on how fast they're going to grow. And suddenly, like, this VC wrote a big check and they're like, listen, <laughs> you better go find someone that's been there, done that, been CRO of a $100 million company and that knows how to get you there. And that doesn't work often. It's pursued often, but it doesn't work often. You know, oftentimes, like, I've seen a lot of these startups go out and hire, you know, a big sales executive from Oracle or Salesforce and pluck them into their company. and often fails miserably. You know, like if you spent 15 years at Salesforce or Oracle, I mean, you've, you're a master of your craft, but your craft is not taking a startup from a million to 50. Yeah, I agree. Nine times out of 10, that is not going to work. Yeah. And so to your question, like when we get away from like, yeah, I need a sales leader. Let me go find someone that's been there, done that. I would reorient to what you're asking, Gary, which is like, what do we need to execute here? Well, we really need someone that if we're in an early phase here, what we're talking about here, finding product market fit, we're just trying to, you know, we're, we're a little early stage Slack company, just trying to get, you know, 70% of our customers to send 2000 team messages in the first 30 days. I mean, it's a very different sales leader. Someone that literally is managing probably like, if it's a CRO, let's say like three or four sellers, a customer success person, maybe an SDR or two in sort of like a, a very, um, you know, high paced, rapid change, iteration, test, iterate, learn context, and then can move us in the next phase of codifying the playbook, right? That's, that's not someone running a thousand person team at Salesforce. No, exactly. And another point that you've highlighted is that the first person, the first salesperson, a tech startup should hire ought to be a hybrid product marketer, account executive, rather than a classical hunting sales rep. And to your earlier point, the remuneration package for that individual is going to look a lot different to what we classically understand for a, for a sales exec. Are you actually getting your portfolio companies to go down that route of hiring someone with that kind of hybrid oh, yeah. makeup? And you're finding that the the compensation package, the remuneration package is working for them as well? Definitely. We did this at HubSpot and where we started. And also anytime we opened up a new growth avenue, I helped drift a little bit, do some of this stuff. I helped a lot of companies do this even before the VC fund. And in a lot of our portfolio too. I mean, this was probably... This work was first done way back in the early part of the century with the sales learning curve. I forget what they exactly named it. It was like the coin-operated rep versus the like evangelist rep or something. And I mean, yeah, your 10th hire is way different than this first one. You know, when you're making your 10th hire, you've got a sales playbook, you have an onboarding process, you have a pitch deck, you have a comp plan that's tested, you've got funnel metrics and milestones that you're holding people accountable to on a weekly and monthly basis. You have a sales management layer that is ready to like take this person out of onboarding and, and coach them toward a productive rep. Like this is a what what the sales learning curve calls a coin operator rep. Like give me the sales playbook and give me the comp plan and let me just go, you know, find a bunch of amazing customers for you and and make them successful and make our business a lot of money. That is 
the terrible first hire. <laughs> it's a terrible first hire. I mean, all they're going to do is be like, okay, what are we doing here? Talk to the CEO for 30 minutes, go pitch that to like 30 companies. It's not going to work because it never works out of the gate. And they're just like, hey, it's not working and quit. I mean, you need someone that's going to, they have the skills of a product manager that they can listen to customers and pattern recognize and codify and communicate that to an engineering team. They need to have some of the skills of an account executive where they're comfortable talking about money. They handle objections. They can progress things toward a closure. They can hold people accountable to the next steps. Like it's a tough, tough hire to find, but usually for them in like businesses that have recently moved into scale mode in the last few years. And they were one of the first reps there. And they're actually lost now. <laughs> they're <laughs> lost in the factory and they don't know what to do. And they, if the company's smart, they'll put them into a new learning area. But sometimes they just need to go on and then do the next one. You know, so yeah. those, those are good people in the mind. You've also looked at go-to-market playbooks and concluded that they are a primary cause of startup business failure. They're too focused on the product and they typically ignore the buyer. So, so how can startups ensure their playbooks really support success instead of contributing to failure? The big thing there, so if like if you progress to the product market fit phase and we get that, you know, that definition, whatever, 70% of companies, you know, hit this event and the Slack example is 2000 team messages in, in this amount of time and the Slack example is 30 days, then great, we got product market fit. So at go-to-market fit stage, we need to do it scalably. And there's things we weren't working on in the product market fit phase that we now need to work on before we move into a, a state where we can add two, three reps a month to this business. We need a playbook. We need a scalable comp plan. We need a scalable pricing model. We need a scalable demand gen channel. We don't need any of those during the product market fit phase. In fact, I wouldn't spend too much time on them. But now we need those. I would say like the biggest mistake in defining all of those is um, copying what you did at your last company. <laughs> Especially for someone who was at that last company for like 5, 10, 15 years, it's just like, it's hard. I mean, it, that's what you grew up with, you know, and there is no universal correct sales hire. There's no universal correct sales comp plan. There's no universal correct sales playbook or even demand generation channel selection. It's all needs to be optimized within the context of the business. And I think the three biggest drivers of that context is who are you selling to? Like CMOs, CIOs, like salespeople, whatever. Like in the US and Japan and Europe, like all these things matter. What are you, you selling? <laughs> like how complicated is it? How much is it? How, how sophisticated is it? And what stage are you at? Seed, A, B, C, whatever, right? So those are the three drivers. And you have to rethink like the decisions around your playbook, your, your sales hire, your comp plan, your pricing based on those three stages. So just like real specifically, like lots of big enterprise deals lean into like Medic as an example, M-E-D-D-I-C. You know, metrics, economic buyer, decision process, decision maker, identify pain, champion and sometimes you throw in competitors champion really exceptional playbook foundation for you know million dollar deals complete overkill for a 
product-led growth, like starting with a hundred dollar a month play. You know, in those cases, they lean into like Bant or GPCT just as a qualifying matrix, matrix, and like, and get people to adopt software before they buy it. So those are you know two very contrasting contexts there that are going to require very different playbooks. Let's talk about sales leadership and promoting people into sales leadership roles. This is another issue that you've uncovered: the tendency to promote, frankly, the wrong people into sales leadership roles. So what's going wrong here and why? There is research that I didn't do that is very, it's a significant pattern is most people promote their their top seller to their manager. Pretty intuitive, but often fails. And the research shows that. So why do they do it? I mean, they just figure like, hey, you know, Mary's crushing it. <laughs> so why don't I just like have Mary first off, they, they don't even make her into a full manager. They're like, why don't I just have her be a team lead now? <laughs> oh yeah. Keep play, selling. Play coach. Yeah. I get the best of both worlds. Keep selling and teach everyone else to do what she does. So fail Sounds- end up failing at everything. Oh, so bad. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I can understand why the entrepreneurs want to do it. It's like you don't want to pull your best person out of the funnel, but you also want to like have them benefit from, you know, all these things. And it's like, but it just, it fails for a bunch of reasons. Number one, first off, the player coach model isn't sustainable for more than a few months. Like you talk to people who've sat in this role and it's extraordinarily hard to switch daily on a daily basis between the activities necessary to get to your personal quota and the coaching activities necessary to develop your people. In oftentimes you're in a crunch, and when you're in a crunch, those people will tend to really focus on the activities necessary to get to their personal quota and de-emphasize the coaching activities because they figure they won't get fired as long as they're hitting their own quota. And so it really backfires for you. And, and you gotta you gotta gotta move into a, a place where you you do have a full-time manager who does not have individual quota responsibility, but is, is solely responsible for the team. And that's essentially their quota so they can stay focused there. The other reason that approach fails is Mary was the great seller. She was great at prospecting and building trust with a buyer and understanding how to manage her time. And sometimes these great sellers, if you look under the hood, can be a little aggressive. They can have a bit of an ego. They can, <laughs> those are not good characteristics of a leader <laughs> and a manager. I mean, the manager needs to be a great coach. They need to be able to understand the data and diagnose skill deficiencies and, and work people through those deficiencies. They need to be a great hirer if you're expanding the team, interviewer. There's just not a lot of overlap between those skills and, and purebred individual selling. So what we need to do is we need to assess our management candidates on those criteria. Now, of course, we can't, even though like rule 101 is don't promote your best seller to manager, well, you can't promote your worst seller either. <laughs> you know what I mean? like, so it's just the point is like, they need to be good. Like they need to be hitting quota. Okay, so just like, Anyone that's hitting quota is a candidate. And if you take that 
bucket. It doesn't matter if they're 101% of quota or if they're 200% of quota. That doesn't matter. It's just they need to be doing the job. And ideally doing the job in a way that they don't have tremendous weaknesses in any aspect of the job because they just need to be above average in every aspect. That way they can coach everyone on their team to an above average or good status, right? And so you can just put them through a sequence of like exposing them to the aspects of the job, whether it's having them participate in interviews, having them participate in coaching sessions to observe and develop their own skills there. That's the path to develop in your management layer. And you recommend that versus bringing in from another startup or scale up someone with proven sales leadership skills? You could do either way. I think over time, as you're, as you're hiring your, like if you're building out your team and hiring a management layer, ideally, you know how to do both. Ideally, you know how to develop people from within and you know how to hire people from outside. I like to think about like ideally two thirds of them are developed from within and one third are hired from the outside. You want to do both. I mean, you want to develop from within because that attracts a great talent pool. Like if people know that you've got a reputation of developing your staff and and want to get to management path, you become an attractive employer for some of the best talent that's out there. It's also just easier. It's like the success rate of a a manager that's developed from within versus a manager that's hired from the outside. I haven't seen the research on it, but I would bet a lot, a pretty good amount that the one developed inside is, is a higher success rate. It's basically like a two or three year interview, you know, versus someone that was hired from the outside. However, you want to know how to build, bring people in from the outside because otherwise it could be a scale impediment. You may just not have someone on the bench ready in the next three months. Has your research unearthed any particular traits to look for in external hires for VP leaders, so VP sales? So when you, you think there isn't enough strength on the bench and you do decide to bring someone in externally, what are the specific traits you've uncovered uh, that you, you emphasize for your portfolio companies that they need to look at? Yeah, very consistent what we've talked about, which is a a deep reflection on what the tasks of the job are, which is largely hiring and coaching. So a deep dive there. And uh, secondarily, the ability to not just copy and paste what they did at their last job, but to appreciate the difference in context and adjust their strategy accordingly. So some of my favorite questions are, so I understand what type of reps you hired over at Oracle. Can you tell me like how you would adjust that model for our company and why. And I understand the sales playbook you ran at you know, Oracle. Can you explain how you would adjust that for our company and why? That's a very telling question for me. And the best of the best that I've seen can adapt it with really high IQ insights. And I'm very excited about that candidate. Most people don't think it's any different and are just basically telling me they're going to mount the same thing. And that's fine. It's just now on my shoulders to project whether or not that's going to work for our company. Like you're not, you're not like really hiring a candidate as much as you're hiring. In that case, you're hiring a methodology that they're going to implement. Those are great questions. Finally, you talk about the confusion that many business leaders have between sustainable differentiation and temporary 
differentiation. How can businesses be sure they are truly creating sustainable differentiation? Sure. The best work, if you want to read up on it, is probably like Michael Porter's Five Forces, which is many decades old, but is still one of his forces on evaluating the attractiveness of an industry is the barriers to entry. And he's got some really good work in there on what truly is sustainable. Um, if we if we move this into our SaaS or software environment, most of the time when I ask entrepreneurs what is their defensibility from competition, they hinge that strategy on product features and capabilities. And most of the time, that is not sustainable. That is something that a company can usually just develop in the course of three to six months and take the defensibility away. So just be careful on that. What you essentially have to do is you have to take through the the exercise of like, imagine if you're right. Imagine if you your product does do great and you create this new category that you talk about and you become a 20, a 30, a $40 million business. And then imagine that 10 of the best engineers from Quit form a team, raise 20 million bucks from Sequoia, spend four months reverse engineering your product and build it, and then go to market and sell it for half your price. Why do you still win? Why do you still win when a Sequoia-backed company with exceptional engineers has the same product as you with half the price? That is sustainable defensibility. Okay, And so answers to that in this day and age are things like network effects. I think Dropbox being an example, like the more that Dropbox has shareability, then you know there's there's value to that network that someone's already on my system. And just because there's another product out there with half the price, they don't have as many users. And the more users, the more valuable to me. Another one that's popular these days is power of the algorithm, like machine learning or artificial intelligence. Most people feel that an algorithm is much better the more transactions and at-bats that it has. So we have a couple of plays like this in our portfolio where people have come out and copied their product exactly as is, and they are selling it for half the price, but we're still winning because the product is an algorithm. It's a machine learning algorithm. And this company has processed a billion transactions and their machine learning algorithm is that smart because they processed a billion and another one has only processed 100,000. That is a sustainable defensibility that's been created. Another example is over time, like an ecosystem play, right? Like if you have a number of partners that are embedded in your system, that's very hard to like snap your finger and recreate as a, you know, a Sequoia back 10 engineer company. And the final one that's common today is the ownership of the category almost from a brand standpoint. Brand is a sustainable advantage. Like Nike's brand is hard to friggin' snap your fingers and just recreate in three months. You can't. <laughs> and so this day and age, like to create a category through content marketing and you know, a conference, virtual conference today, and like a book and a LinkedIn, you know, presence. You can't just copy that. Like that happened with us in inbound marketing. Like Halgan Darmash at HubSpot created inbound marketing and it started to work and the competition started to copy it and call themselves inbound marketing companies. And it just fed our demand. We were the inbound marketing company. 
So that that's another common one that you can lean into is is the brand play from the perspective of creating and owning the category. Okay. Well, as ever, Mark, we've covered a wide range of topics all the way from how to handle 90 people on a Zoom lecture through various aspects of uh, go-to-market and playbooks and hiring superstar sales performers and sales leaders as well. So we seem to have covered a wide range of topics. Let me wish you, your loved ones, and your uh, portfolio a safe and uh, healthy summer. And uh, looking forward to uh, maybe doing another podcast with you later in 2020 or 21. Awesome. Well, thanks again for having me on, Gary. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent. 